When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Ian Perkins. Ian contracted the plague while in service to Bernhard of Saxe-Weimar, but he recovered. However, Bernhard of Saxe-Weimar caught the plague from Ian, and Bernhard was less fortunate. Great job, Ian. This, of course, is all a lie, but if you would like me to lie about you, you know where to go. Patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 67 of the Thirty Years' War. So in the last episode, we saw the creeping disasters of Spain pile up. Her naval armada was destroyed in the Battle of the Downs, and King Charles's regime struggled to make the whole incident look less like an act of Dutch disrespect. Of course, the reality was, the Dutch were playing for keeps, and they were not about to allow a troubled British king to restrict their freedom of action. As the Dutch laid in the hammer blows, we learned that affairs closer to home in Spain were also not looking good. The Catalonian situation in particular had deteriorated over 1639-40, to aggravated by Olivares' insistence on raising and quartering an army in the problematic province. Since it was on the southwest border of France, Catalonia was too strategically important to ignore, but Olivares' policy towards it gave a new meaning to the term heavy-handed, to the serious detriment of Spanish security. The eruption of revolution in Catalonia in July 1640, and in Portugal in December of that year, would dramatically alter Spain's remaining years of the Thirty Years' War, as well as its conflict against the French. In this episode, though, we're going to put a pin in the Spanish story. We're going to focus again on Germany. Remember Germany? Specifically along the Rhine, where Bernard of Saxe-Weimar commanded, and in the empire itself, where Emperor Ferdinand III faced new opposition from his vassals. The interconnected nature of the two Hasburg branches meant that problems in one family quickly bled into a weakness in the other. Now that Vienna couldn't access the full power of Spain, Ferdinand was quickly coming to realise that the mission of defeating the newly empowered Franco-Swedish-Dutch alliance was too tall in order for him. In the meantime, the sheer impact of more than 20 years of war on the German countryside and its rulers was felt as famine, plague and depravity took their terrible toll and took with it a surprising casualty. Without any further ado then, I'll now take you to spring 1639, where Bernhard of Saxe-Weimar seemed triumphant and contented after his earlier seizure of the fortress town of Breisach in Alsace. 
The question for Cardinal Richelieu, though, was one of loyalty. Could Bernhard be trusted, or was the wily commander seeking to go into business for himself? Let's find out. It was something of a tradition for the Thirty Years' War that victorious generalismos should bring with them great ambition and equally great demands. Wallenstein had absorbed the duchies of Friedland and Mecklenburg. Ernst of Mansfeld had demanded Hagenau in Alsace. Several Swedish generals continued to demand German estates. And now Bernard of Saxe-Weimar seemed eager to add his name to this ledger. The curious fate of Alsace-Lorraine and its centrality to the Franco-German rivalry of the 19th and 20th centuries sharpened the debate on Bernhard and his intentions. He was a German soldier in French service, and in early 1639 he wanted to keep Alsace for himself. If he died, the region would first go to his brothers, in the second place to France, and only if a general peace was arranged would it return to the Holy Roman Empire. So long as he was alive, Bernhard intended to keep Alsace as a fief of his family, and to establish this family on par with the other allies in the Franco-Swedish camp. This was no small ask. Bernhard demanded control over Breisach and several other fortified towns along the River Rhine. This would establish him in a formidable position, and he would be a prince worthy of such a title. But Cardinal Richelieu was understandably apprehensive about creating a Wallenstein on his doorstep, especially in Alsace, where French pretensions to rule had been harboured there for many years. And Breissac itself was an invaluable place, crucial to the furtherance of the French war effort, as the historian A. Lloyd Mood appreciated when he noted, The Breissac bridgehead was a splendid acquisition. It covered recent French conquests in Alsace, cut the Spanish supply lines between Italy and the north, and acted as a gate for future French troop deployment with the Swedes against the Emperor. Obviously, Richelieu did not want to lose control over the area, so in June 1639 he sent a French general to reinforce Bernhard with several thousand men, and ordered him to reach an agreement with that generalissimo. Such an agreement would never be made though, as Richelieu's look turned The troublesome Bernhard of Saxe-Weimar died of plague in mid-July. The timing was so perfect for Richelieu that several rumours were put about that he had poisoned Bernhard. These rumours were never validated with proof, and of course we know that it was really all Ian Perkins' fault, but Richelieu didn't waste any time. He immediately worked to harness the full control of France over Bernhard's army. Bernhard's lieutenants were told in no uncertain terms that they would never be granted the opportunities to lay claim to lordship, nor did they wish to tempt fate in such a way. Bernhard's relatives also recognised the folly in accepting the inheritance which their brother had left them, and thus, through this miraculous development, France came into Alsace and the ideal strategic position which Bernhard had left. A Latin pamphlet at the time proclaimed that Untimely and premature death, for such was the decision of God, commanded the hastening foot to stay in the midst of its victorious race and marked out the limit to his further ambition. That a figure as dramatic and controversial as Bernhard of Saxe-Weimar could be felled by something as apparently boring, let's be honest, as a bout of plague, underlines an important fact about the state of Germany by the late 1630s. The countryside was devastated after two decades of war, 
and with the destruction, the harvest failed, starvation followed, and disease was empowered like never before. The passage of armies and marauding bands into the same towns or patches of land over and over again had bled the countryside dry in many areas. Law and order broke down, and the word of the soldier instead became law. What harvests there were to collect was stolen by bands of men, the crops were eaten in their rawest form by desperate people, or they were just trampled underfoot in the fields. It was impossible for good forage to be found for the horses, because people in the most deprived areas dug up the grass seeds and ate them. Fugitives who had been left on the gallows were said to have been cut down and their bodies eaten by desperate citizens. In one town, a pastor recorded seeing a crazed woman gnawing on the flesh of a horse, joined by an equally crazed dog and several birds. Cats, dogs and rats were supposedly sold at the market in Worms, so desperate had the food shortages become. People ate whatever they could find, including acorns, saddles and even each other. Stories of abject terror concerning roaming bands of cannibals did the rounds in several refugee camps along the River Mine, where it was said that criminals had developed a method for exhuming the newly buried dead and selling their corpses as food. Some of the more depraved tales were surely fabricated, but there could be no denying that desperation and despair drove many to horrendous extremes. Compounding the misery was the reaction of the peasantry, who engaged in desperate revolts against their authorities. Along the Rhine, where the situation was most desperate, peasants armed themselves and withdrew into the hills. The rotting corpses and filthy conditions, combined with the march of so many soldiers across the land, provided ideal conditions for the germination and spread of disease. According to one account, sickly Spanish soldiers brought a plague to Munich which carried off 10,000 people. Plague was the nightmarish bedfellow to starvation, which was itself in plentiful supply. With as much as 95% of the population dependent on the arrival of new agricultural produce each year, a collapse in this system could be catastrophic. Shortages in food would follow, and price increases in staples like bread would only follow that. In addition to these woes brought about by war, the historian Geoffrey Parker has indicated that Europe was itself suffering from a sudden cooling of its climate in the early 17th century which only served to underline the sense of general crisis that the people suffered through. A bout of plague ravaged Western Europe on average every 15 years between 1536 and 1670, but one particularly bad dose arrived between 1628-32 to and wreaked havoc on the sieges then underway, most notably at the Siege of Mantua, as we saw, where the disease proliferated among besiegers and besieged alike, until the latter became so weak that the settlement virtually collapsed at the feet of the former. There was little that even the physicians of the time could do to contain these epidemics. Doctors were notoriously ineffective, and a remarkably small proportion of them even existed, but services accessible mostly to the wealthiest only. And at the heart of these humanitarian disasters, of course, was the scourge of war. War spread plague like no other agent. It destroyed years of prosperity and jeopardised the fragile economies, disrupting trade and ruining the less essential professions like artisans or luxury craftsmen. When soldiers passed through an area, obviously they ate all the food, but they tended to burn the rest and then demand monies as contributions. These sums were supposed to serve as a guarantee against excesses by the soldiery, 
but frequently they were not enough to stop all atrocities. People were haunted by the arrival of these armies on the horizon, and any citizens who did their best to hide or mask what remained of their wealth were liable to severe penalties. The horrors of war were not distributed evenly across Europe during the Thirty Years' War, but generally the regions along the Rhine into Bavaria, in Saxony, across northern Germany and central Europe in the modern-day Czech Republic, suffered the worst. Thus, when Johann Banner's Swedes broke into Bohemia in 1638, it was considered a boon to their fortunes that the surrounding lands hadn't been spoiled by war for four whole years. In August 1639, Swedish troops under a new commander, the Brandenburger, by the name of Konigsmark, marched into Franconia and raided the suburbs of the towns of Banberg and Würzburg. These towns hadn't seen an enemy on the horizon since 1634, and to see them again would have been the equivalent of a gut punch to the morality of Germans in the area, who surely believed that the war had passed them by by now. These disasters would have compelled Emperor Ferdinand to become more active in his peace-seeking initiatives, but there was still only so much he could do in this regard. The Emperor's allies were not blind to the crisis unfolding before them. After the Peace of Prague in 1635, Maximilian of Bavaria, arguably the man who had profited most from the war, was urging for this war to be brought to a negotiated end. He didn't want to tempt fate any longer and risk his gains. In 1637, Maximilian engaged in a comprehensive reflection on the situation in Germany, and wrote in a fairly long missive, but I think it's worthwhile detailing, the following. The costly maintenance of such a strong army, running into the twelfth consecutive year, had so stressed and exhausted his imperial majesty and the electors, princes and estates of the Catholic League, that many true-hearted people now felt it better and safer to consider more appropriate means for peace, respite, recovery, stabilisation of conquests, rather than continue the war, for which the means were already noticeably lacking, and which would expose what had been recovered, as well as existing Catholic possessions, to the uncertainties of military events. Matters have reached a crisis. The Catholic electors, princes and estates, together with their lands and peoples, have been largely exhausted and have lost the means to continue the war. The imperialists and Austrians have shoved the burden from their lands onto others. Even the Pope has excused himself from helping the Catholics in the Empire, who are fiercely attacked and oppressed by foreign Catholic and non-Catholic potentates, and have been reduced to such a condition that they and the Catholic faith are threatened with complete destruction. It is thus appropriate and timely to consider who is to blame for this, so as to promote a peace as good as the current situation permits, and whether it is good and appropriate before God and posterity to take this last means to preserve what remains, or to continue the war that threatens the total ruin of the aforementioned archbishoprics, bishoprics and Catholic lands, along with the Catholic religion, and so many millions of souls. Men hunt men as beasts of prey, in the woods and on the way, wrote Sir Thomas Rowe, an English ambassador at the time. In Hesse-Darmstadt, nominally an ally of the emperor, the region was subject to the full force of the billeting after the triumph of Nordlingen in 1634. So great was the want of resources that ministers in Hesse-Darmstadt recorded losses of 30,000 horses, 100,000 cows and 600,000 sheep, while 10 million thalers in hard currency was also extracted. And the Swedes were no better. 
as mines had 60% of its wealth and 40% of its population sucked dry, while a quarter of the buildings in that city were levelled for good measure. In Württemberg, occupied by imperial and Bavarian forces after 1634, 75% of the population disappeared. The Westphalian estates and poor subjects have unfortunately been almost entirely exhausted and ruined by the heavy billeting and damaging passage of troops for some time, noted an imperial observer in March 1636. One of these Westphalian estates in a region called Balve felt compelled to write to its overlord, the Elector of Cologne, urging their master to protect them, or else the population in the region would be forced to emigrate, because we have been completely exhausted and ruined by paying the contributions, not to mention the devastating passage of friends and foes and the heavy burden of war. This petition continued with the note that more than half the farms in this district of Balve are now wasteland, and so it has become impossible to continue paying obediently without us all soon being forced to emigrate as beggars. A major cause of the devastation wasn't just the presence of armies, but the size of these armies and their existence all year round, which went against both tradition and, according to the opinions of one pamphlet produced in 1631, common sense. So let's just compare the present war with those of the past that were conducted during the reigns of emperors Maximilian II and Rudolf II, the pamphlet began, and you can easily see the considerable difference between the warriors of the past and the soldiers of today. And the pamphlet continued, To be brief, you must accept that current military ways are but a shadow of those of the past. Wasn't there a fine universal order in the Holy Roman Empire? If there had to be a war between it and its hereditary and open enemies, it had to be done with the advice and agreement of the electors and estates. Then each Kreis, or imperial circle, was assigned and paid its share of the burden, like a general tax to support the war effort. No one knew anything about extraordinary contributions, extractions and similar extortions. Honourable, brave colonels were appointed who enjoyed a good name and high standing amongst the cavalry and foot soldiers, and these quickly collected brave men together at the muster sites and drove them against the army. It was rare that a regiment was kept together for more than a year, unless it guarded the frontier. We were discharged before the winter, so that the poor country folk weren't burdened with winter quarters. Today you hear nothing but billeting, mustering, contributions and other exorbitant matters. The colonels are either foreigners or skeevers, swindlers, stonemasons, smiths and the like, who, once they've collected enough money and property, pack their bags and leave the others to look out for themselves, especially when the campaign starts. Some regions suffered far worse than others from this cycle of billeting, mustering, contributions and other exorbitant matters. Brandenburg was one such case. By 1638, the population in Berlin had contracted from 12,500 to just 7,500. In the Saxon capital of Dresden, meanwhile, the ratio of burials to baptisms changed from 100 burials to 121 baptisms before 1630 to 100 burials to 39 baptisms thereafter, with immigration being the only way Dresden could maintain its population. Thanks to Johann Andrea, a supervisor of Lutheran churches in Swabia, we're provided with a particularly gloomy and human account of the effects of the war. This war, Andrea reminds us, didn't produce merely death and destruction, but also terrible loneliness. Andrea noted that of his 1,046 communicants alive in 1630, 
only 338 remained by 1639. Just in the last five years, 518 of them have been killed by various misfortunes, Andrea wrote, detailing the loss of, among others, five intimate friends, 20 relatives, and 41 clerical colleagues. I have to weep for them, Andrea wrote, because I remain here so impotent and alone. Out of my whole life, I am left with scarcely 15 persons alive with whom I can claim some trace of friendship. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If the conflict was a horrendous experience for those that lived in Germany, it appeared like the vision of an apocalypse to those outside of the country. One such foreign visitor was the Earl of Arundel, who was determined to engage in a voyage down the Mine River in spring 1636 and wouldn't be told otherwise. The mine flowed west from the Rhine and it marked the unofficial boundary between North and South Germany. It was this line that Swedish troops retreated over following the disaster at Nordlingen in 1634. Due to the prevalence of conflict in the region, the lands surrounding the Mine River were subject to particularly grim trials, and Arundel took it upon himself to record these for his audience back home in England. From Cologne to Frankfurt, all the towns, villages and castles are battered, pillaged and burnt, and every one of our halts we remained on board, every man taking his turn on guard duty. Here we stayed for four days until our carriages were prepared for us to continue our journey. There, after passing through a wood, we came to a wretched little village called Newkirken, which we found uninhabited, yet with one house on fire. Here, since it was now late, we were obliged to stay all night, for the nearest town was four miles away, but we spent that night walking up and down with carbines in our hands and listening fearfully to the sound of shots in the woods around us. Early next morning, His Excellency went to inspect the church and found it had been plundered and that the pictures and the altar had been desecrated. In the churchyard, we saw a dead body scraped out of the grave, while outside the churchyard we found another dead body. 
Moreover, we encountered many houses, but found that all were empty. We hurried from this unhappy place, and learned later that the villagers had fled on account of the plague, and had set that particular house on fire in order to prevent travellers from catching the infection. Arundel's account of this unknown village of Newkirken was by no means unusual, and Arundel was not above taking advantage of the situation, buying the famous Perkheimer Library for a paltry 350 thalers from its desperate owner. In consideration of the hard times and the difficulty in obtaining food, the Perkheimer Library was one of Nuremberg's more fabulous stores, containing the collection of the humanistic Renaissance thinker Willibald Perkheimer, who lived from 1470 to 1530, and its contents must have appeared to the stricken Germans as relics from a bygone age. It must have been difficult for many to remember a time when the war wasn't consuming their daily lives. Well over a year has passed, during which I, a pastor, have not been able, in a whole year, to have a dish on my table, wrote the pastor Ludolf from Hesse, adding, Anyone who has not themselves seen and endured such a state of affairs will not believe what I set down here for remembrance. There continues to be a shortage of cattle, no pigs, not a goose to be found in the village, and even the road is overgrown with grass, corn, oats and barley. Those, who were one of the most distinguished and richest, are now the poorest. They have carried loads of wood or some corn across the fields for payment or for themselves, barefoot or just in stockings, and without shoes, for they had none, just to earn their bread. I don't want to name them. It is not their disgrace. By 1652, this demoralised pastor confessed that I had to give up maintaining the death registers altogether in such miserable times. And it is little wonder that Pastor Ludolf gave up this mission. Population declined at a remarkable rate in the first half of the 17th century, aggravated undoubtedly by the privations and extreme nature of a war spanning three decades and crossing into multiple countries. Between 1600 to 1650, just to give you an idea, the demographic change is startling. Bohemia's population declined from 4 million to 2.5 million. Spain's population from just over 7.5 million to just over 5 million. Russia's population, with its time of troubles, declined from 11 million to 9.5 million. Italy lost a million citizens in the same period, and Germany's population as a whole is estimated to have contracted from 15 million to 11 million. We are led to the narrative provided by Friedrich Schiller in his classic account of the Thirty Years' War, written in the 1790s. One extract reads as follows. The misery of Germany had risen to such a height that all clamorously vociferated for peace, and even the most disadvantageous pacification would have been hailed as a blessing from heaven. The plains, which formerly have been thronged with a happy and industrious population, where nature had lavished her choicest gifts and plenty and prosperity had reigned, were now a wild and desolate wilderness. The fields abandoned by the industrious husbandman lay waste and uncultivated, and no sooner had the young crops given the promise of a smiling harvest that a single march destroyed the labours of a year and blasted the last hope of an afflicted peasantry. Burned castles, wasted fields, villages and ashes were to be seen extending far and wide on all sides, while the ruined peasantry 
had no resource left but to swell the horde of incendiaries, and fearfully to retaliate upon their fellows, who had hitherto been spared the miseries which they themselves had suffered. The only safeguard against oppression was to become an oppressor. The towns groaned under the licentiousness of undisciplined and plundering garrisons, who seized and wasted the property of the citizens, and, under the license of their position, committed the most remorseless devastation and cruelty. If the march of an army converted whole provinces into deserts, if others were impoverished by winter quarters or exhausted by contributions, these still were but passing evils, and the industry of a year might efface the miseries of a few months. But there was no relief for those who had a garrison within their walls or in the neighbourhood. Ever the change of fortune could not improve their unfortunate fate, since the victor trod in the steps of the vanquished, and friends were not more merciful than enemies. Certainly, revisionist accounts of the Thirty Years' War, written in the 20th century, have attempted to challenge this notion that the conflict was wholly ruinous, like Robert Ergang's 1954 work, The Myth of the All-Destructive Fury of the Thirty Years' War, deserves mention for its title, if nothing else. Ergang claimed that much of the information we have drawn from the destructive history of the conflict comes from imperfect sources prone to exaggeration, with Schiller's works among these, in addition to novels written after the event. One such novel, no, it was not Matchlock, it was The Adventures of Simplicissimus, published in the late 1660s, and focusing on the fate of a citizen of Germany as he endured the horrors of the war. The book was written by the Catholic convert Hans Jakob Christoffel von Grimmelshausen, and its account of the worst excesses of the soldiery were later reproduced word for word, even though the book was technically a novel and wasn't intended to be read as a historical account. One historian has called Grimmelshausen's work a simpleton's bestseller, implying that only such a simpleton could be capable of accepting the novel as fact. And yet, it should be said that some scenes that Grimmelshausen has depicted are particularly incredible, as the protagonist describes a scene where his father was tortured for information. Now, I know this is a bit self-indulgent, but since it's part of the literature of the Thirty Years' War, I hope you'll forgive me. Grimmelshausen writes, They put him close to a fire and bound him so fast that he could stir neither hand nor foot and smeared the soles of his feet with wet salt, and made our old goat lick it off, and tickle him that he nearly bursted sides laughing. And this seemed to me such a merry thing, for I had never seen him laugh so much, that I, too, had to laugh to keep him company, or perhaps to hide my ignorance. In the midst of such glee he had to tell them everything they demanded, and indeed reveal the whereabouts of hidden treasure much richer in gold, pearls, and jewellery than might have been expected on a farm. I really think they need to bring back that method of torture of using goats to lick your feet until you can't stand the tickling anymore. But while a certain amount of scepticism is important when assessing the damage the war inflicted, historians and enthusiasts alike will be confronted with the dilemma that a complete record or perfectly accurate measurement remains impossible. Certainly, earlier estimates that the war destroyed half or even two-thirds of Germany's population has since been replaced with more conservative estimates that place the tally closer to 15-20% to in the Holy Roman Empire alone, but this was still the equivalent of a drop from 20 million to 16 to 17 million by the war's end, and a significant demographic change 
would have been the result whatever way the figure is presented. Efforts to balance the research of sceptics with the narratives of destruction and despair that accompanied the war has led another historian to conclude that a collective memory of the tragic consequences of the war was created, which validated the experiences of the common people in a way that rarely has been done before. The rhetoric of death and destruction was not, therefore, simply a symptom of the war, it became part of the impact of the war. Indeed, a great impact of the Thirty Years' War was the scars it left behind on the people of Germany, not just because of the demographic, political and economic transformations which the war brought about, but also because of the narrative these experiences created. You have to remember, the trauma was ingrained in German memory from this conflict like no other event, and only the modern wars of the 20th century could surpass them. All of this, of course, could not be known to Emperor Ferdinand III, but these impacts and consequences were certainly felt to some degree. By spring 1639, he'd been informed of the intentions of the electors to call an imperial diet. The imperial diet was different from the Regensburg diets of previous years, in that this gathering wouldn't be tasked with electing an emperor's successor, but solely with discussing the means by which the war could be brought to an end. You might wonder why Ferdinand didn't try to stop this. Well, the simple answer is that he couldn't. His father might have tried, but his father was no longer around, and the aching continent which had hosted so many battles and too many armies was crying out for peace. Emperor Ferdinand III was no longer strong enough to combat his vassals. The constant draining years of war and ruin had taken their toll. It became increasingly doubtful that a favourable outcome to the war could even be had by force of arms alone. Then, once 1640 dawned, this suspicion was confirmed with the collapse of the Spanish position. The cracks in the Habsburg dynasty were beginning to spread, and they threatened to fracture everything that had been gained before. At the heart of the conflict in the empire, the German countryside creaked, groaned, and prepared itself for yet more disaster. That's enough depressing history for one episode, history friend. So we're going to come back next time with a continuation of the story. I hope you enjoyed this episode and thanks so much for joining me. Oh, by the way, you should know, it's my birthday pretty soon and to celebrate being 31, it'd be really nice if you could leave this podcast a review in the usual places. Did you know you could actually leave it a review on Spotify? I'm not sure if that actually makes any difference. It's literally just a star review that you leave, so please do that. But if you're feeling more energetic or appreciative, a actual worded review on iTunes, no, it's not called iTunes, what's it called now? Apple Podcasts or something, that'd be really super as well. Believe me, I do read all of them, so it really makes me happy when I see that you're enjoying the show. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.